0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. This week, Ron Miscavige, and I've been waiting a long time to talk to this guy. He has an amazing story. So let's get right into it. Ron, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, TJ. It's my pleasure.
0: Yeah, so uh, I saw you do some interviews, and I thought, man, I've got to talk to this guy. And uh, I'm fascinated by what happened, because... Scientology has kind of taken a, a center stage recently um, with everything that's come out with Leah Remini and uh, some of the other people that are coming out, and they've really started talking about what's going on inside there. The interesting part about you and it to me was is that you brought your family into it, and then— you decided after so long that it wasn't for you, but yet your family has still stayed. So if we can get some background just on how you came to be with it and how you brought your family into it.
1: Okay, TJ. Well, first of all, uh, let me say this to you. The earlier years in Scientology that I spent back in the 70s were about a 180 degree turn about from what it is right now. Okay. right now, I would consider it to be one of the more toxic uh, operations on this planet. And they get away with things within the law because they have a religious exemption that they wouldn't be able to do. There's a friend of mine and he said Scientology is a cult described as a religion operating as a business. And that was the best summarization I've ever heard anybody give it. But now, let me get back to uh, myself and getting involved in it. <clears throat> my son, David, when he was born, was afflicted with asthma. And he would go into asthmatic attacks and turn blue. And I didn't know if he were going to live. I mean, it was the bane of my existence. I'm the one who took him to doctors to get a shot of adrenaline to get him out of that. And, I was at my wit's end trying to figure out what the hell am I going to do? This kid can't live his life this way. I tried all kinds of unusual solutions and uh, some of them worked on a little basis, but none had lasting effects. So I happened to get involved in a multi-level marketing scheme. Do you know what I mean by that? Like Amway? you know, Absolutely. You in the lower Absolutely. Level. Yeah. Okay, this one was called Holiday Magic. Okay. And uh, I got involved in it. I bought in and I became a distributor. Now, we're in South Jersey. And I'm in a hotel room where we're holding an uh, an opportunity meeting. In other words, come to the room and get fleeced. Basically, you know, of course, I, I didn't see it that way in those days. I thought it was a good deal for everybody. And I'm standing with the girl on my left talking to a guy in front of me, and there's a guy to his right. And he said to the girl on my left, I'm a Scientologist. I said to the guy I was talking to, hang on a second. I said, what is that? His name was Mike Hess. I pinned him down, and for about 30 minutes, he told me what Scientology was. And to be honest with you, it fascinated me. Um, I thought, I somehow got to try this out. So he gave, he said, one of the things you can do is if you have a headache, you don't ever have to take another aspirin again. I says, well, what do you mean? So he gave me a little procedure to do. And I says, well, I don't have a headache now, so I can't even try it. So he says, that's all right. He says, try it sometime along the way and see how it works for you. So maybe a week later, I'm driving down one of the major highways in South Jersey and I have a headache and I thought, whoa, I got to try this. I tried it. And in one instant, the headache went away. I said this, I got to get involved in. So then I started going to uh, little meetings in a cafe called uh, Frank Ogles cafe cafeteria, rather in Woodbury, New Jersey, every Tuesday or Wednesday, he had a meeting with all the local people who were aspiring Scientologists. And we would talk about different things. So, I went there for about a month and then I figured, okay, I got what the point is. So I gave it up. Now, sometime later, I thought to myself, no, wait a minute. If that helped me to that degree, why don't I take David to see this guy? So I took David down to Frank Ogle and I said, Frank, and I told him, I says, David has terrible uh, asthmatic attacks. Can you help him? He said, well, let's see. He took him into what's called an auditing session, which is basically uh, two-way communication where you're talking to people just as if you were going into any clinical uh, laboratory and you're going to talk to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but they call it an auditing session. About 45 minutes later, he came out. I said, Dave, how did it go? He said, Dad, I'm handled. He never had another severe asthmatic attack as a child. Uh, that impressed me so much i thought well i got to get my family involved and i i got everybody involved in a, what we used to call a franchise it would be called a mission these days in cherry hill new jersey so we used to get down there every saturday and i put my children on courses and things and that's how i get in, that's how i got involved in scientology itself
0: so let me ask you, when you say that, and, and you took him to go uh, get auditing, and I want to get into auditing a, a, a little later because I think there's more to it now than there was maybe back when you joined. But what was it about this that – because it it sounds – and I think it would sound weird to anybody that's just looking in from the outside that you you take your son – and they just talked to him about not having asthma again, and he just doesn't have it. Because I don't think people would understand that, because I definitely don't understand that. So what was it about this
1: that, that was so genuine to you? Well, when he was being audited, it isn't just freelance, think whatever you want to think. You're guided along a path, and you're eventually going to come to the point where you realize you had something to do with getting that condition. And once you take responsibility for it, at that point, no matter what caused it, you would be that much in control of it. You see what I'm saying? A little bit. Well, I'm telling you, it works. It works. And uh, as far as the permanence of it, that's another thing. And uh, I would say that that worked up until there was a point when he was in the C organization we're jumping way forward now but I want to do that okay
0: okay go ahead
1: where he had such a severe asthmatic attack he ended up in the hospital and um, they handled him but then when he was uh, a person went to pick him up he said to him he said listen he says i had a terrific realization when i was in here and the guy said what was that he said Power is not granted. It is assumed. Now, later on in this interview you're doing with me, I'm going to tell you how that worked and how he used it to gain the leadership of the entire church. You remember that? Okay. Power, he he realized power is not granted. It is assumed. Now, getting back to where I brought my family in. Okay. So now we're what you call public Scientologists, which means you have a regular job. You live within society itself um, and you buy services. And in other words, maybe there's and there is it's one of the best things you can do in Scientology. It's called the communications course. And to be honest with you, that's probably one of the best things I've ever did, in it because it gives you the actual anatomy of a proper communication. I I can get along better with people. I can get along better with interpersonal relationships with my children. That is one of the first things that you do. And it is so good that people many times who have left will say the same thing. The best thing I ever did in Scientology was a communication course. And then there is lower level auditing, which has to do with repairing your life, which basically you sit down with an auditor and you talk about those things that have been bugging you that maybe you had never told anybody before. And simply by telling them and getting it off your chest and getting a proper acknowledgement, you feel relief. You see what I'm saying? I do. It would just be like sitting down with somebody, telling about a problem you have. And somehow you might say, Hey, wait a minute, I can do such and such. And you solve the problem just by talking to somebody. You, you follow me? I do. Okay. So that's how the earlier part of the what they call the bridge to total freedom goes. Now let me get into how that works. And by the way, may I say this? My my website is called therealronmiscavige.com. Well, I've Absolutely. said it. So what the hell? And the reason I say that is because if you put anything else in. The Church of Scientology has purchased 500 variations of my name. Every one of them will take you to a hate site where the character assassinate me. They tell them I'm a Nazi and, you know, I should have been shot about a week ago. So the, the actual what what you got to put in is the real At the top of the website, it says it must stop. And there's a guy sitting on a bench in front of a body of water. If you go there, all these things I'm telling you about. You can listen to them for yourself. As an example, the two private investigators who were following me for a year getting paid $10,000 a week. Their entire interview is on there. You can hear uh, Nick Pye, the West Dallas policeman, uh, interviewing these two guys. And you can hear the whole thing, just as I'm going to talk about in a little while. Okay, Okay, so... Let's go
0: back to the auditing for a second, because I, I, I follow what you're saying. Uh, you talk to someone, you work through your problem. I I get that. That's almost talking to like a therapist, a counselor. I get that. What I don't understand about it, though, is that you said in the beginning, when you look at a problem like asthma or your headache or whatever, you have to claim some kind of responsibility for you making that happen. Am I Am I misunderstanding that? Because that's the part I'm not getting, that... I don't understand how it can be that person's fault they got asthma. How that could be any way that they could fix that? That's the part I'm not getting from it.
1: I, I get that, and I, I can under, i can readily understand why you feel that way. But I'm not saying that you put asthma into your body. But if you can take ownership for the fact that you have it, okay, that it is, you know, claiming its toll on you. It's screwing you up in so many words. Just that alone alleviates the power it has over you. Okay. It's not just, I'm talking about what David, I'm talking about thousands of people who have received auditing and have had similar results. So to claim that it doesn't work, you would have to try it yourself, but be a willing participant. You can't go into auditing and say, well, I know this doesn't work, so I'm, I'm just going to go to the motions. It's just like anything in life. If you want to experience something, you gotta say, okay, I'm here. What do I do? So I've heard you say before
0: that if it weren't for how Scientology has turned out and, and what has happened with the religion itself, that it would be probably one of the best um, kind of do it yourself, fix yourself up.
1: Uh, right. And I ways I've said of that learning. On, I've said that on interviews. Look, the early part, those two things, that first level, lower level of auditing and the communication course, if those were sold at a reasonable, doable amount of money, like maybe that course should be 50 or 100 bucks. Okay. And, you know, people could afford that. Well, you get into the later levels of Scientology, you're talking about people spending a couple. Hundred thousand dollars, TJ. I'm telling you, those lower levels end up being the hooks, and I'm going to go into it right now. And I think you'll get a better understanding of why I say that.
0: All right, let's talk about that then.
1: Okay, good. Now, so you do the communication course, you go out into life, it's working. You're you're getting along better, and you're thinking, what the hell? I mean, this this stuff is really good. You know, this really works. Okay, you're, it's gaining your confidence. You get some of the lower-level auditing where you can spill your guts and get it off your get it off your chest. Listen, it could be to a guy in a bar room. You're sitting at a bar and you tell him about something. You may get the same goddamn result. You know what I mean? Just the fact that you could get it off your chest and you say, "Well, this works." Those two things now have your confidence. Somewhere later along the line, you're introduced to a new datum that you think, hmm, I don't know if I agree with this, but since everything has been true so far, I'll accept it. Now you're hooked. Do you see that? I do see that. And that is exactly how it works. And worse yet, as a public Scientologist, that is a person who has a job, a house, you know, and he's living his life in what they call the real world. You pay for services and you're expected to study five days a week, two and a half hours each day. What you're now doing is literally brainwashing yourself by studying these datums that maybe you wouldn't have agreed to had you not had said earlier this works. I have confidence in it. Do you see how that works? I do see that. On a daily daily basis, studying for two and a half hours, you're continually accepting datums that maybe you'd have no inclination to accept them otherwise.
0: And and that was going to be where I was headed to next. I've heard uh, other people that have gotten away. Leah Remini, one is a famous one that's gotten away, but she said that she had to go to the the church uh, at least two, two and a half hours a day. And they worked it on a system where you have to go there every day. Uh, if you miss, you have to make up that time. If you go on vacation, you have to make up that time. So I guess I'm trying to understand from a, a basic level. You see this and you see that you're you're learning things from it and it's going well for you. But you're starting to invest more and more time in it. Is there ever a point where you go, what the hell am I doing? Like I'm here constantly now and you're not getting super changes anymore. And you're, in fact, spending more time and more money.
1: Well, you're talking about me when I finally decided when I was in this organization, I was going to take my wife and leave and escape. I didn't leave. And mind you now. I escaped and we'll get into that later. I'll tell you how that, all right? Okay. Yes, it does come to that, but look, here's an interesting datum that I, I will tell you, you can accept it or not accept it. Okay. And that is this, people believe what they want to believe. And number two, sometimes they will believe anything. Now, that may sound crazy, but you can apply that to anything, not just Scientology. You could apply it to the political scene. You could apply it to a sport you may be playing. uh, You could apply it to some group you may belong to. But those two datums, those two facts, I've observed that to be true that people believe what they want to believe, and they will believe almost anything. And that keeps you going. Because the things that are promised to you of a supernatural level, they're quite desirable and you'd like to partake of them and maybe lead a, a better life, a more causative life. And it is like the stick on the donkey's head with an apple hanging in front. He'll walk endlessly. He'll never get that apple. And I can tell you this, TJ, in 41 years being involved in Scientology, I never saw one person achieve any supernatural level of competence. Never, not one.
0: Well, and, and that's an interesting point that you bring up because at at, at certain points they start talking about where you can uh, do body transitions to where you're in another country reading a newspaper. Uh, you can. There's all different kinds of things you can do. I, I guess I go back to the same question when does this stuff sound like crazy to you where you're, I mean, it, it took you 41 years to get away. I, I guess I'm not understanding how it doesn't happen sooner where people think, what is this? I mean, because if, if you just get into it, you talk about the basic tenets. you have man is immortal. Uh, experiences extend beyond a single lifetime and uh, capabilities are unlimited. Now, the only thing that I can believe out of that is capabilities are unlimited. I I get that one. But the person who started Scientology and all of this supernatural stuff, who, by the way, wrote like 95% of all of his writings were sci-fi, died. So, you know, right there, man's not immortal.
1: Well, I don't think man as a, a corporal entity, in other words, a body was ever intended to live forever. I mean, that's, you know, you die, you get cremated, or you get put in the ground. That's the end of you. That's right. That's the end of that. But the actual life entity that runs that body, the spiritual being, the belief is that that goes on. And that goes either to who knows where. They say you come back right away. I don't believe that because I've had one experience that proved that I knew somebody in a past life. Do you want to hear that or should I save it for later? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. And I'll tell you what it was. You're just going to have to hear this and accept what I'm saying to you as I'm telling you the truth. Okay. I would go down to the Philadelphia organization on a regular basis to study and, you know, hang around with everybody. There were very nice people there. And there was one person called Jeff Battershop. He was what you'd call a registrar. In other words, he would sell people services. One day, I'm standing there in the open end of the first, uh, open end of the building where they had books and everything, and he said, "Ron, see that guy over there? His name is Charlie Cress. He comes in here. He doesn't do anything. Maybe he'll buy a book occasionally. Why don't you just see what he's about?" I said, "Okay, good." So I went over and I said, "Hey, you're Charlie Cress?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "I'm Ron Miscavige." And within minutes, I felt like I knew this guy my whole life. So after talking a while, I said, let's go get a coffee. There's a McDonald's around the corner. So we go into the McDonald's, order a coffee. He pulls out his change out of his pocket. He has a silver dollar in his change. I pull out my money clip and there was a silver dollar on my money clip. I looked at it and I said to him, Charlie, what is the date on that money, on that silver dollar? He showed it to me. I showed him mine, and it was the same date. We were carrying silver dollars with the same date in our pocket. And I said to him, Charlie, the last time we were together in a different life, we agreed that the way we would know each other was to carry an unusual coin today with the same date. And we became terrific friends. Now, about a year, a year and a half later, we're talking on the phone. And he just brought it up. He says, you know, Ron, remember that silver dollar that we showed each other? He says, about two weeks after McDonald's, I lost it. And unbelievably, you tell me how you can lose a goddamn money clip. I literally lost my money clip with the silver dollar several weeks later also.
0: And I get what you're saying,
1: but do you you never chalk? I mean, never chalk it up to coincidence. What would be the coincidence in 1970s of two people walking around with the silver dollar with the right. same date on it? You're talking uh, if you were to get one of these people who do actuarial rates for insurance companies. I don't think they could put a nod on it. Now listen, before we go one step further, okay? I'm not even asking you to believe me. You can think no,
0: whatever you want. It's, it's okay no, with me. No, no. What I'm saying is I, I just, I, I wonder, maybe it's the, the skeptic in me because I, I just wonder, you know, how you were talking about that you, you kind of want to believe what you want to believe. I, I, I can get where you're going with it, but I, I just wonder if if that's part of the problem with everything that's going on is they, they get you to believe what they want you to believe. Am
1: I right about that? Well, that's with any group that you absolutely you admit, not just Scientology. A- absolutely. I mean, you're talking you could talk about a religion, about, a you know, anything. I, I don't want to bring up names of things because with the goddamn situation these days, if you say something to a person that offends them, they say it ruins me for life. Let me tell you something. Right. Back in the 50s and 60s, when I was growing up, we could say anything to each other and we'd laugh about it. It was a total tolerance era that you know. I don't even want to say what we called each other, but it was just. you would say this or that, and you go, ah, ha ah, ah, ha!" Just a big joke, you know, and punch each other in the arm or something, just jokingly, you know. But anyway, yeah. They so, so want- let's
0: let, So as you meet this guy and you say you're going to Philadelphia and stuff, and you're and you're mingling with this group, how much money are we talking about right now that you've put into Scientology?
1: In those days? In those days. Literally a pittance, a pittance up to that point, maybe several thousand dollars, four or five thousand dollars. Okay. Now we're talking about people these days buying courses and getting auditing, spending a couple hundred thousand dollars. Wow. I'm telling you, the, 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 the ambience of the whole thing in the 70s was completely different than it is today. I mean, you could hang out with people and you wouldn't necessarily talk about spending all the money on the bridge and stuff. You're talking about some good wins you may have had in life from the last auditing you got. And it was just, I don't know. It was 180 degree difference than it is now. 180 degrees.
0: So can you kind of run run through kind of a selling point for these classes like how how do they get you to take the classes how how do they sell it because like you talked about any group if you talk about a religion i'm not going to say any particular religion but they want you to do certain things they want you to pray certain ways they want you to handle the way you handle that religion certain ways how do they sell these classes to you how do they tell you that something good is going to come from it can you walk us through
1: that well, they tell you that you're going to gain certain abilities from doing the next level. And many times you come close to that. But if you don't get what you thought you're going to get, they will say, well, you can get that on the next level. It's always the donkey going after the carrot that's in front of his nose. And that's right. how it works. And listen, once you're into it for a while and you spend all this time studying, brainwashing yourself, building a platen. Of all these things that aren't aren't examined by you, they're not evaluated as to whether they're true or not. You're living with that thing above your head, and you've built a mental prison for yourself. Listen, TJ, I have a good friend. Well, he died recently, and a wonderful guy, great drummer. He was in this. I when I when I was in on staff, I worked in the music area. Right. And uh, I'm at trumpet player and like a composure i basically worked as a musician since i was 13 years old for money right fernando was a guy's name one day we're talking about it and he escaped also and he says let's face it ronnie we were conned now i hung up the phone and i walked from the living room into the kitchen and there's a short hallway and there's a full-length mirror I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, Ron, you were conned. At that point, I started peeling the false datums I had accepted as being true. And that was the beginning of me being able to really rid myself of any of the influences that that cult had on me. Because I'm going to tell you something, TJ. I did the hardest thing a person will ever do. And do you know what that is?
0: I would say that it's stepping away from your son.
1: No. Generality, not just that. What do you think the hardest thing any person has to do?
0: Say that they were wrong?
1: You got it on the nose. And you're the first person that ever got it right out of the box. Because a person, rather than say, yeah, I was wrong about that, they say, Well, yeah, I was wrong. But the reason I was and it justify why they were wrong. No, I mean, a self-admitted fact. You were wrong. You were duped. And you now you admit it. And now I started examining those things that I had held to be true. Start peeling them off. And that was the end of my being uh, part of that group.
0: So let let's go back a little bit in time. I, I want to talk about how your son's coming up through the ranks now. Uh, you're going to Philadelphia and you're 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 hanging with this group and and you're getting involved more and more. How is your son and the rest of your family coming into Scientology now? Because I know at an early age, like 16, is when he really kind of took the leap forward, correct?
1: Well, yeah. Let me tell you about that because. That leads to this point in this interview. All right. Okay. Okay. And he was sitting. Excuse me. He was laying in bed, kind of holding his head in his hands like that. And I looked in the room and I said, hey, Dave, what's up, man? He says, dad, I don't want to go to school anymore. I says, how come? He says, the kids don't listen to the teacher. They all smoke dope. Nobody's learning anything. I want to go and help L. Ron Hubbard. I want to join the Sea Organization. Now that, whoa. Stop me for a second. And I'll tell you what ran through my mind. I joined the United States Marines when I was 17 years old. Okay. My dad had a sign for me to go in because I was underage. So I remember going up to the insurance business where he was. and I said, dad, I want to become a Marine, but you got a sign for me. He said, Ronnie, are you sure you want to do that? They're the first ones in. I said that I want to become a Marine. So he signed for me. Now, I go to Paris Island. I go to boot camp. The first night in boot camp, did you ever see Full Metal Jacket? I did. That is exactly how it is. It's a living nightmare. And I remember thinking, this is the worst mistake I have ever made in my life. I remember thinking I was going to get away with it, but just as the DI was walking past me, he took his hand and smashed my head into the upper bunk, and I just saw blue stars. And I thought, good Lord. Now, several months later, I'm graduating from boot camp, and I could remember thinking this as a young man they changed me from an undisciplined civilian into a disciplined Marine. And I can make myself do anything. That has held me in good stead my entire life. That was one of the greatest gains I've ever made from anything. Now, I can go into this in a little more depth and it, it may become more interesting. Do you want to hear more about it? Absolutely. Okay, so now I'm in the Marine Corps and the Korean War was over. I didn't feel like going there and being an occupational troop, although I had no choice. If they were to send me, I'd go there. But when I graduated boot camp, I went to advanced combat training in Camp Lejeune, and then I was stationed in Quantico, Virginia, where I worked in a battalion called Schools, Demonstrations, Troops. And what it was is a battalion that was dedicated to demonstrating war problems to Marine Corps officers in training.
0: Okay.
1: In other words, we had a machine gun company, an infantry company, a communications company, logistics, the whole thing. I worked in battalion headquarters. Now what my job was to get all the statistics for the entire prior day down to battalion headquarters before noon and I did it and I I was good at it. So now one of these days I needed some dental work so I went down and had to the base dentist work on my teeth came back to the barracks and at around four o'clock in the afternoon, my entire face went into amazing agony. It was unbelievable. So I went to see him the next day and he, I said, I described it. He said, Oh yeah, that's facial neuralgia. I said, well, how do you handle it? He said, well, we don't know that, but it's called facial neuralgia. I thought, what is this? You give it a name and that's it. So he gave me some aspirins. Okay, so I started going back. I bought a bottle of bourbon at the PX. Went to the barracks at around four o'clock, it started coming on. I took a glass of bourbon, whipped it down, and it took me out of the pain. I did it for about three days. And that third day I said, you know what? If I do this, I'm gonna become a goddamn alcoholic. I took the bourbon, poured it down the toilet, threw the bottle out, put on my utilities, and walked out to the air station. Now the air station is where they had the airplanes. <clears throat> a big hangar. And in there was a gym. Now all the way walking out there. Which was about a mile. My face hurt so bad that I was slobbering. It was unreal. I walk in. And there's a guy there. His name is Eddie from New York. I says, hey Eddie you want to work out? He says, yeah. I says, okay spot me and I'll spot you. Now listen to this. We did one set of bench press. I spotted him. I did a set. He spotted me. I did the second set of bench press. I handed him the weight. I said, hang on. The pain went away in my face. I sat on the edge of the bench. And I theorized this. That. If you could forcibly. Take your attention of pain it no longer has life that was my theory and with david in giving him some of the treatments that i did i'll tell you one of the things i did is a winter time in south jersey he's a kid he's having an attack he's turning blue i went in the upstairs bathroom with him we had a stall shower i took off all of his clothes all of mine held him in my arms Went in the shower and said, Dave, I'm not trying to hurt you, my kid. I turned the hot water on. And I says, OK, here we go. I turned off the hot water. That water came out of that spigot like it was 33 degrees. All of a sudden, he started going. Ah, ah, ah. He was breathing. He was over the asthmatic attack. Now, I rubbed him down with a, a towel, gave him a kiss, sent him to bed. I thought all of these things, all of those particular things that I gained from being in the Marine Corps, when he said to me, I want to help Elron Ron Hubbard. And I finally said to him, OK, I'll help you, man. Anything you want. So I bought him some clothes. I gave him money. And on his 16th birthday, I took him to Philadelphia to the, uh, the airport. He got in a plane and within seven months, he was working with Elron Hubbard right by his side.
0: And when he does this, how is you guys' relationship at that at that point? I know you told us about the asthma and stuff, but at at sixteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, how is you two's relationship?
1: As good as any relationship could be. Okay. I I, I loved him openly, and he loved me, and we just look. When you do, you have any kids, TJ? I do. You know when you see that new baby being born. There's something magic about it that
0: absolutely.
1: I thought to myself, I I love this new person with all my heart and soul, and I'll do everything to help him lead a better life. And I did that with all my kids. And I just, that's how we got along in those days. And uh, as I say, he went within seven months, he was working with Elder Ron Everett on a movie set. He was the cameraman. Now, to take you a little further into that, He gained the position working with L. Ron Hubbard where he was on the point of anything that L. Ron Hubbard sent out to the public would go through him. Anything that the public said to L. Ron Hubbard would go through him to L. Ron Hubbard. That is a position of power. Absolutely. When When you control the communication line to a power source. And L. Ron Hubbard was the founder of Scientology. Regardless of 90% of what he ever told people was a con, people loved him and they respected him and they thought he was the source of all the good things they'll ever get in life. So now, a little later on, he did get an asthmatic attack. And that's when he went in the hospital and had the realization that... He told us to Paul Grady. That was the guy who picked him up. He said, Paul, I had a realization and I got to tell you what it is. Power is not granted. It is assumed. I told you this earlier. At that point, he started putting people in position who would back him up, removing people who were against him. And he rose right to the top and he assumed the leadership of the Church of Scientology. And that's how we got there.
0: So what age is he at when he comes to this realization?
1: In his early 20s.
0: Okay, so. He had been how long in the church now?
1: When he came to that realization? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Uh, you should say on staff more than when he came into the church. Okay. Okay. On staff. Maybe, you know, I never figured it out in uh, maybe a decade. I don't know. That's, Eight years and that that's what I week. was
0: thinking was about 10 years But yeah. the, the reason I bring that point up is 10 years And he's a relatively young guy I mean, in his 20s, you,
1: you oh, yeah, know yourself you, Absolutely knew. I mean, he's a young man Absolutely
0: You were in the Marine Corps at that age I was in the military at that age I was in the Army at that age um, Your brain, you do a lot of dumb shit when you're that age and no it, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a It's amazing to me, though That he's that young and he's realizing what he can do with this. And it's not necessarily, I don't know if I would say it's even a good thing. At the time, maybe people aren't seeing it, but you're seeing a a very much start to uh, change person.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you, there was, do you ever hear of Lord Acton, an Mm. English statesman? He lived between the mid 1800s and early 1900s. He is the person who said power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm sure you've heard that.
0: I've heard that.
1: Yeah. And that is what happens to anybody who gets in power, whether it's politicians, business leaders, chairman of the board, you name it. They get power. Very few of them don't get corrupted. Very few.
0: I, I would tend to uh, tend to agree with you in a in a position like that. Yeah. So you you brought up the sea organ stuff. I for people that don't know what that is, can you describe that a little bit and how Scientology is kind of broken down into the groups?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just get a sip of tea. The lowest lever level. A person can be and deliver services would be that person who joins staff at a local mission. They're called staff members and they sign a contract of two and a half or five years. Okay. Okay. The next Don't, level let, don't would, let
0: me forget, but I want to talk about those contracts in a minute too.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next level would be a person who delivers services at what's called an advanced organization, such as the one in Los Angeles, um, the the C-Org where you do your OT levels. And that would be a C-Org member that lived there and delivered services there. And then the top level would be those people who joined the C-Org and went to the international base in Hemet, California. And that would be like the Cardinals in the Vatican. So if you can look at that, those steps, that's about how they are. you If you join the Sea Org, you sign a contract that you commit your existence, all of your future existences for a billion years to forward Scientology throughout the universe.
0: And there's another one of those things that, that makes me chuckle when I hear a billion years. Who the hell signs a contract for that? Tens of thousands. So in talking about the Sea Org, it's not necessarily uh, a sea-going um, unit. It, But L. Ron Hubbard did love the sea, right? That's how he designed all the well,
1: uniforms. Yeah. He had a ship called the Apollo, and he bought that. It was a, a cattle ship and had it renovated to be a place where he could take people with him, and they'd go out to sea. But I think, and from what I hear, people who— were around in those days. The main reason they did it is because the authorities were after him. And once you get out past a certain number of miles, they can't snatch you.
0: In international water. It was to, uh, what I had heard was it was to avoid tax uh, problems that were going on. Yeah. So as your son's moving through this, you're you're moving through the organization. Uh, the relationship still good between you two?
1: Once I got once I arrived, and this is in 1985, the end of June 1985, once I arrived in Hammett, California, at that at that level, at the top level, I went to work in the music area. And to be honest with you, my first months were absolutely a knockout. Did you ever hear of Edgar Winner? Uh, Edgar Winner was a rock and roll star in the 70s. He's from Texas, as a matter of fact. Okay. And I did an album with Edgar Winner as my first duty in the C organization. I played trumpet on the album and it was just wonderful. We worked hard, but you know, it was what what I enjoyed doing. One day I come out of the studio and about 30 yards to my left, David is walking with his entourage, three or four people. And I saw him and I yelled, hey Dave. He turned around and gave me a look. He didn't have to say anything, but I knew at that point our relationship wasn't the same. What I mean is this. He never referred to me as dad when he was talking to me as a staff member. When I had a birthday, he would send me a very nice gift, send me a meal down from L.A. to eat in our dining area and, uh, you know, a bottle of Chianti wine and my wife and I would sit there and in the note it was dear dad but personally he never referred to me as dad
0: so was there any
1: talks between you two at all the main talk I ever had well sometimes we would come out of our eating area and there was a flower bed with a little stone wall around it and I'd sit on that and he had an office close by sometimes he'd come out and We'd shoot the breeze just on personal stuff. Very, very nice talking. And as a matter of fact, I'll be very honest with you. Probably if you would have kept in communication, God forbid, I would still be there. Because that was what I desired more than anything, to be in communication with him. All right.
0: So did it become less about Scientology and more about the relationship with your son or... I guess I'm trying to, trying to figure out what were your reasons to stay? You had already kind of decided that your relationship with your son was different. You had started to expose flaws in the thinking of the organization. What was it that kept you around? Because you stayed around for quite a while after that.
1: Oh, no kidding. My wife. Okay. Can we talk about that? My wife. Yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I love my wife. This summer, we'll be married 31 years. Um, We have a very good marriage. And at the time, I would say to her, Becky, look at things are getting worse. They're getting bad. We've got to get out of here. And she said, Ron, I know they're going to get better. I just know it. She's the kind of person who will walk in a room and see a light where there is none. A pessimist will go in and blow the light out. Okay? so she always thought it's going to get better. And I, I remember saying to her, Becky. If there's a boulder running down the mountain, do you think that boulder is going to stop running down the mountain and roll up? If things are going bad and nothing has changed in how the uh, the organization is operating, they'll continue to go bad. Well, I couldn't convince her. So that was it. Now there was a major thing that happened though. And I'll tell you about that right now because one Christmas David gave me a Kindle. Are you familiar with the Kindle? I am. This was the old one where these days it's a touch screen, right? Right. In those days, they had a toggle switch. And the toggle switch, if you press to the left, it would select the word. You can press up, go up, or press it down and press to the right. It would take you to the dictionary. Now, I got that Kindle from David. And the security guards wanted to take it from me. I said, guys, you're out of your mind. David gave me this. I'm not giving you my goddamn Kindle. And he also somehow put all of L. Ron Hubbard's science fiction stories on there. So I had this. Now, one night I'm in my birthing and I would I was home a little before Becky. And I look at a word and I want to get the definition of the word. So I pressed it to the right, which would take me to a dictionary, right? Okay. I pressed it a little too long and it put me on the internet with no filter. I now started looking up the things about Scientology. And one of the things I looked up was this. There was a girl on the base named Annie Tidman. She was with L. Ron Hubbard ever since she was a little girl. She was with him when he died. Annie got lung cancer and was sent to LA to get treatment and was sent down with a handler, a person to take care of her needs. About once a week, I would say to our medical liaison officer, how is Annie doing? And she would say, oh, Ronnie, she's doing great. She's really doing well. On the internet, Annie Kidman died six months earlier. The next day I go out and there's two girls standing outside the birthing area. And they said, Ron, do you want to contribute some money? We're buying Annie a birthday present. I said, no, I'll pass on it. Now, they were either a part of the scam or they were being kept in the dark and it was being kept up. Well, Becky came home and I started telling her these things. And I said, Becky, we got to get out of here. And she agreed with me. And that's when we started making our plans to escape. And that plan took six months to execute.
0: Before we get into that plan, let, let's talk about that for a minute. So you get this Kindle, you accidentally, by all means, go onto to the Internet. First off, what made you start looking? What made you start going, I, I should really start checking this out? What was it that made what I guess, like a lot of people say, the straw that broke the camel's back? What was it that made you start looking on the Internet for answers
1: that you should know? But I didn't know Listen, I told you that I used to say to Becky It's getting bad right. We gotta get out of here That was that was a thing that made me want to check out And see what was happening with the church I thought I'd find well, some mild things about this or that I didn't I that I guess right.
0: what I'm asking is What were those things that were making you what, what were the actual things that were happening That were making you say this is getting bad
1: This I'll name them for you Okay, okay. I lived on a compound. There was a north side and a south side to that compound. And the church owned about 400 acres. There was a barbed wire fence on both sides with the barbed wire pointing out and the barbed wire pointing in. I could not leave that compound and go to a store to get some coffee or a pair of underwear at Walmart. I had to do all of my shopping at the local PX on the base. If I left the base, I had to have somebody go with me. If I went to see a doctor, they'd have to go with me and be my keeper as I went to the doctor. So I was not permitted free access to leave anytime I wanted to, to go to a store. If I made a phone call, I had to go through a switchboard and the girl would say, who are you calling? Why are you calling? And if it were acceptable, she'd put me through and then listen in on the call and write a note as to everything that was said or the main jest of what it was and turn it report in. If I were to mail out a piece of mail, I had to let that envelope open and the security guards would look at it. If there was something in there that they didn't like, they would send it back. I'd have to write another letter that was acceptable. By the same token, every piece of mail that came to me was opened and read by security. Those are the things, those are living in like. They're living in a compound. That's you're talking about like 1984. People would write knowledge reports on each other. If you said something that was out of line, a person would write a report and turn it over to security, and you'd have to go in and get security checked on an e-meter and see what you what you were up to where where you're off the base.
0: Let's uh, let's talk about those e-meters for a second. Can you describe for the listeners what those e-meters are?
1: Well, basically, it's a galvanometer, I guess they call it that. And what it does, and I've seen it do this many times, is when you're holding it and there's something that comes up in your mind that is a value, that needle on the e meter will fall to the right. In other words, It will show reactions in your mind. I'll give you an example of a test that we would do with people. They'd hold the cans until the needle was still. And then you pinch the guy's hand and you can see that needle fall to the right. And then you say, recall that pinch, it would fall again. Recall that pinch, it would fall a little bit less. And after a while, it didn't fall anymore. So by reviewing that pain, you erased it from your mind. That's the theory on how an e-meter works.
0: Okay. So was this only you that was under all this scrutiny, or was everybody on the compound under no, this No,
1: everybody. TJ, I'm telling you, if you think it's bad, it's worse than you think it was, okay? I no mean, because it sounds thinking, pretty bad. You're goddamn right it is. <laughs> it's no way for a living person in America to live. I mean, you know, with the Catholic Church, if you go against the rules... They may excommunicate you. You can still go to mass. You can still hang out with your family. In Scientology, if you speak out against them, they take your family away from you. And if your family is part of the group, your family will obey them. Because if they don't, all of their friends will disconnect from them. As an example, my two daughters. If my daughter, Lori, had kept talking to me, her employer would have fired her. She would have lost the job. A good paying job. All of her friends would have d- disconnected from her. Those are the penalties. It's gruesome, man. And
0: and I guess that's where that disconnect is for the the general public that's out there. They see all these things, and and when you look at it, the bad far outweigh the good. Far outweigh. The the what makes it so interesting to me about you though is your son is in charge. Like, you would think that you would have it better than anybody.
1: Well, I used to have talks with Shelly, who is his wife. And I remember Shelly saying to me, you know, we don't believe in nepotism. So you got to you got to be better than the other person around you. And that's the type of life I lived. It wasn't like I was excused from screwing up because I was David's father.
0: Absolutely.
1: But I would think that.
0: But I would think that that you would be at least treated a little different by security or by uh, maybe corporate uh, entities that were there. I would think that you would be treated a little different, but from everything that you tell me, it sounds like you were treated
1: worse than everybody. I was expected to hold a higher standard. That's that's what it was. In other words, if I didn't do better than the other person and I was I was failing to be a representative of David as his father. That's the best way I can put it. As a matter of fact, I think that's the best way I've ever put it.
0: Uh, is there, was there any time that that he pulls you aside or you pull him aside and go, what the hell is going on? Or he yes. pulls you aside and says, what the hell is going on?
1: Okay, here's what happened. I worked in the music area. Now, look. In England in the 70s, I got a recording contract with Polydor Records. All right? Okay. A week later, I got a contract with Chapel's Publishing for my music. In other words, I could write things that were acceptable and get paid for in the general public. I was the only one in that music area who did this. There was another guy, Peter Schles, who wrote a song, On the Wings of Love but he never had his own recording contract. We got a new music manager and I would write melodies day after day, week after week. He would reject all of them. I would go to work, literally month after month it went this way, yet I was allowed to continue on post as if it was normal and finally, I wrote to David, said, David, I got to see you. So one night I go up to the place where there was a little office and I went there with him and uh, his communicator. And I said, Dave, listen, I'm working in a music area. Everything I do is getting rejected. Everything day after day, week after week, month after month. I said, I can't work this. I can't live this way. Can you get me another job? I don't care if it's waxing cars. I'll do it as long as at the end of the day, I can mark down a statistic saying done. I did something of value. And he said, okay, listen, I'll look into it. He never did. And that's why I'm talking to you.
0: So what do you think happened? What What do you think caused that riff? There has to be something there that is it—the absolute power. Is it that he thought that he could do better, or that you weren't doing good enough? What What is the
1: thing that made that rift
0: between you two?
1: Well, I can only, you know, surmise. I these days I don't know how to read minds. I forgot a couple of days ago how to do it. But anyway, okay. <laughs> look, <laughs> he has so many things he's juggling at that point that once the meeting was over. I think he thought, well, I'll get to this later. In other words, it didn't have like an important factor in his mind. So he never looked into it for me. And I think it was just as simple as that. Because when I left, it was probably one of the most shocking things that ever happened to him.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: That because I was 76 years old and I was the father of the chairman of the Board of Scientology, I would never escape, never that was unthinkable to anybody on that base.
0: Especially to him?
1: I would say so. Yet, it was my biggest cover for pulling off our escape plan.
0: And I want to get into that in just a minute. Um, in talking about that, though, in the in the build-up to it, the build-up to you leaving... Um, you are starting to formulate plans in order to get out of there. You're, you're pulling off a real oceans 11 kind of thing. Uh, Oh yeah. And, and I've heard some of these plans and they're, they're pretty crazy, but they, they worked. They, they did exactly what you wanted them to do. Before we get into your escape though, there was a problem that came up where David's wife was missing. Uh, and it became a very, I I guess a big story I guess is what you would say It was very much downplayed What do you think about that? I mean if you don't mind me asking Because that to me That's where this train goes completely Off the tracks
1: Well Let me tell you something about that My birthday Is January 19th Her birthday is January 18th Every year, I would send her a gift and a birthday and a birthday card on the 18th. The next day, I would get an answer. No nice, a nice reply. Okay. Some years later, down the line, maybe 2005, six, I send her a gift. Day goes by, two days, three, three, maybe the third or fourth day, I get this thank you card and it sounds like a little kid wrote it I want to thank you for the nice gift you sent me and that what the hell is this so I chalked it up to well maybe she's on mission someplace and she couldn't answer me now I escaped from the sea organization and this is years later there was also another guy who escaped around the same time I did his name is Nori Matsumoro and uh, he lived in the south pacific on an island Well, not not like a, an abandoned island but right. a very right. prosperous island okay and i'm talking to him one day and nori worked in the communications section of the religious technology center that would be where all incoming communications come and where all outgoing communications go out so i said nori you know I sent this this present to Shelley. Where did it go? He says oh, I'll tell you where exactly it went. And they have pigeonholes on the wall. You know what a pigeonhole is? It's a little box on the wall. They have them in the post office.
0: Okay. In oh post- yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. That's referred to as a pigeonhole. When you sent her a gift, it would go into the pigeonhole that went to Lake Arrowhead. Up in Big Bear area, and that's where she was. And that's how I found out that she went there. Now, do you want to hear how come she got there? Absolutely. I'll tell you in the next interview. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so now so here, here we go. I'm gonna tell okay. you right
0: now. All right, let's let's go. I'm ready.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what happened is this. Now, in Scientology, if you were to leave any organization, they say the reason you left is that you were committing harmful acts against the organization and you wanted to remove yourself from that organization. So you wouldn't continue to commit those harmful acts. Okay. It has nothing to do, you know, you may be being tied to a pole every day and beaten with a whip. That doesn't matter. It's the harmful acts that you did to them. It's a bit ludicrous, but I'm telling you, this is what it is. You got that, right? I got it. So now Shelly is being audited by an auditor called Antoinette Teasy. And Shelly decides to get in a car and go from Hemet to Los Angeles to see David. When she did that, that was considered a blow. Because she was in the middle of an auditing session and she went to Los Angeles unauthorized. Because of that, her and Antoinette Teasy and Ann Joachim were sent to this area for handling of Becky. And that's how she got there. It, it,
0: like when you, it, it, I mean, I... Uh when i hear these things i just i don't understand one how it's not more known two how more people don't step in on it because the stuff you're telling me is you're you're kidnapping people you're holding them against their will there's i mean you could go down a list of offenses
1: okay how but who who, would, church... who who would who would step in on that tj i i would think the authorities well, here we go. Okay. You get to be an authority. You get some power. You get corrupted. Maybe you want to make sure that you dot your I's and cross your T's. You don't want to lose your job. And you don't have the balls to go ahead and do it. It's as simple as that. Look, at. do you see what I'm doing talking to you here? I do. That takes a little bit of uh, gumption. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm brave or courageous, but I am saying this. I hate seeing an injustice go by and nobody handling it. And that's the reason I do these.
0: Well, let's go back into your escape a little bit. So you start formulating your plan. You talk your wife into it. As I said before, you start pulling kind of your Ocean's Eleven scheme off. And it's it's working great. Uh, okay. Can, can you walk us through that? Because it's a six-month-long process.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, what happened is this. My wife spoke to my two daughters, Lori and Denise. I got to say this. I I love them with all my heart and I, I miss them dearly. They've been gone from me since 2012. I hope we do get in communication, you know, anyway, getting back to this, what she got them to do for my 75th birthday was send me 75 gifts. It could be a little thing as like a pen or maybe a, a little communication kit or a card detailing kit. So I got these 75 gifts, right? Security let it through because you know, it was birthday gifts. Now, Becky had the bright idea. Her mother's birthday is coming up soon. And by the way, I married this wife is a much younger woman than me. Her birthday's coming up we decided to send her a gift for every year of her birthday. So we would send her a detailing kit. We would send her maybe something that I didn't want to lose. So we were getting rid of a lot of these things that wouldn't fit in the car when we were leaving. So all of these go out. So now this takes months to do that. So now what's coming down to the wire And uh, I know this, if I'm caught, I'm gonna be sequestered from my wife. We're gonna both be interrogated for the rest of our life and lead a miserable existence. I knew that was a penalty, but I also knew because I was 76 years old and the chairman of the board's father, nobody, and I mean, nobody would suspect that I was gonna pull off an escape. So now it's the night before. And oh, by the way, what I would do every Sunday morning, our birthing area was on the south side of the base. I would go across the road to the north side to the music studio where I kept in that studio Italian salami, maybe provolone cheese, Italian olives, all kinds of treats. Because there was a refrigerator there and we weren't allowed to have a refrigerator in our birthing area. That was disallowed. Okay. No coffee maker, no. Yeah, I, I know, but I'm telling you the truth. You, you, yeah, you, no, you, no, I, I,
0: I absolutely agree. But every time you tell me something, the story gets more bananas than it was before.
1: I know. Yeah. So now it's the morning of the escape. I'm up at seven o'clock. And these little stories that I would do across the road would take place at nine o'clock when we would have breakfast. Okay okay so now i go out to the well the night before i take a mesh bag full of shoes and a security guard drives up on his motorcycle and says oh hi ronnie and he's talking to me and he sees me putting in these shoes in the car doesn't say anything because it doesn't fit in with his thinking that i would ever do something like that the next day I'm out by the car putting in something else. And one of the executives is walking out of the laundry room and says, good morning, Ronnie. And I say, good morning. I'm right out in the open doing it. So now it's nine o'clock and Becky gets in a car and I drive across to the Southern area where there is a gate. There's, there's two boots. There's a security boot, which is the main one, which has the guards in it down the road, about 200 yards from there is just a gate with a camera on it. Now I'm going past the area where we eat and there's the chase guard where the security guard is in eating breakfast. And I knew that when I got to the gate, if I was let out, I had time to pull off the next move. So I see that that's where Saul is. I go up to the gate and believe me when I tell you, my heart is in my throat, I hit the buzzer The security guard didn't say anything. He just opened up the gate. I pulled out slowly and I said, Becky, we're turning left. She says, let's go. And I pulled out and I hit the pedal and I must have been going 70 or 80 by the time I got down the road, which is a mile. And there's three choices I have to make. I can turn right. That's route 10 to L.A. I can go straight. That's route 60 to L.A. Or I can turn left and go into Hammett which is about a mile to the first stop sign. I knew if I turned left and went in the hammock, when Saul finally was called by Jurgen and says, Saul, get up here on the double. He would tell him that I escaped. I would have time to get into Hammett and turn right into the boondocks. And I knew I was safe. And that's exactly what I did. And we went across the nation. It took us about two and a half days. I paid for everything with cash. I didn't use a credit card because they would trace it and it would come out. They would fly somebody out to capture me. Um, We bought food, everything, cash. Finally, one day before we stopped at a Walmart and got a flip top telephone. And uh, I couldn't make it that night. I was just so beat. I could hardly keep my eyes open. We stopped at a motel. Becky called her brother and said, Donnie, we're coming home. And Donnie, her brother, yelled. Somebody get me a drink. Becky's coming home. (laughs) So So it doesn't end there, though. What's that? It doesn't end there. No, well, we go to her mom's place. And uh, about a week later, I look out the window, which is like a split level. And there's a woman out there. I knew her. It's Marion Powell and Greg Woolhair. They came out to bring me back. And I walked outside. I said, what are you guys doing here? Oh, they said, Ronnie, we'll come back, take you back. Come on. We thought you are going to Florida. Wow. And they, they were laughing, trying to make light of it. I said, listen, guys, I'm not going back to that life. You're wasting your time. And Greg pulled out this issue that says the only reason a person leaves is because of committing harmful acts against the group. And they want to get away so they don't do them. I said, Greg, stick it. Just put it away because I lived a horrible life and that's the end of it. I got into it with him a little bit and I backed off because I liked both of these people. So now. We decided to go to Virginia to visit my with my son, Ronnie. Came back. They had been gone by then. So now I get a house in West Allis, Wisconsin. I'm there for about a year and three months. Excuse me. It wasn't then.
0: No, go, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm listening.
1: It was earlier than that. It was when we were still in, in whitewater that the whitewater police came and said, look at you have been being followed by the church of Scientology. And, uh, would like you to go to, to West Dallas to talk about the police. I went there with my car and the cop. The cop who was doing the examination of the car, Nick Pye. And they looked under the right rear wheel well. And you could see where there was a GPS because it was the magnet is so powerful. It scratched when he it took it off. And then Nick Pye, who. Wonderful friend of mine now. As a matter of fact, he's about 5'10". He looks like an NFL linebacker who could bench press 400 pounds. And it turned out he could bench press 400 pounds. He was a guy that if he told me to do something, I'd say, okay. <laughs> but anyway, he said, do you have any idea why they were following you? And I said, well, you know, because I'm the head of the the chairman of the board's father, And uh, I don't know, maybe David was concerned about my health. And he says, oh, man, he's I got to tell you this. He said, look, when you were shopping at Aldi's, Aldi's is a supermarket in a town just outside of Whitewater. Okay. it was the summertime and you were coming out to the car with your bags of food. I had on a pocket T-shirt and my cell phone was in the left hand pocket. I bent over to put the bags in the car and I thought the cell phone was going to fall on the ground. So I grabbed my chest with my arm like that. They were in a blocked out, a blacked out van looking at me about 20 yards away. And the father, it was a father and son, a private investigator. He said, it looks like the target is going to have a heart attack. And he says, I'm going to call in. So he called in, he got a guy by the name of Greg. Greg says, hang on, I'll get somebody on the phone. A person came on the phone, identified himself as David Miscavige and said, look, if it's his time to die, don't intervene, don't do anything. Now, at that point when Nick Pye told me that, that kind of shifted my universe. And by the way, if anybody wants to hear that interview where the son of the private investigator who was on a job with them says that go to the that interview is on my podcast, they can hear the whole interview and see that I'm telling you what they said.
0: Uh, and once I put the show up, I'll put the link to it too so okay. that people can just click on the link and go to it. But
1: well, wait, these- it goes further now because
0: Well that's what I was about to say These guys are not your normal run of the mill Father son private investigators I want to get into what they were doing
1: Because it gets way worse Okay so about 13 months later One of them Is outside Across the street There's a house that's for sale And he's looking in the windows And checking it out They were going to buy the house So he could sit upstairs and spy on me from morning till night until I went out. A neighbor saw this going on. She called the West Dallas police and said, listen, there's a guy out here going looking through this house. I think he might be a drug dealer. So the West Dallas police, as a matter of fact, Nick Pye came by. And he started talking to the guy and the guy said, what am I breaking the law? What's this about? And Nick says, hey, you look, at that's enough. You're under arrest. Do you mind if I look in your van, in your car? And the guy said, no, it's all right. He went over to this van and opened up the trunk. And in there, there were five license plates from five different states. There were five handguns, Taurus handguns. There were two rifles, one with a silencer. There was a stun gun and 2,000 rounds of ammunition. And on that basis, they took them in, and he was then sent to an eastern Wisconsin federal court where uh, the church sent up a a guy by the name of Rotert from Chicago, I guess a high-priced, you know, fancy attorney. He got him a five-year probation, and uh, that's what happened there. But that interview, you can hear that. On on Dwayne and Daniel Powell That's the name of the PIs
0: Two questions come from that You said that they were going to buy the house Across the street from you To watch you 24 hours a day Yeah What the hell could you possibly be doing That needed to be watched 24 hours a day At this time you're a 76 year old man Just trying to lay low And get on with life What the hell could you possibly be doing That they wanted to watch 24 hours a day I mean, well, you're an exciting guy, Ron, but I don't think you're 24-hour exciting.
1: Yeah. Let me let me put it this way. There was such a thing as paranoia. Did you ever hear that? <laughs> it's not paranoid, though, if they're really doing it. I know. But the person who ordered them to do it has got to be paranoid to some degree. All right. Okay. And that's how I look at it. That There was two guys that followed Pat Broker. Pat Broker was part of that team. That was around L. Ron Hubbard when he died, they followed him for 20 years. And all Pat did was he wanted to go to college and do things twenty years. You try to make sense out of that. I can't. I'm just telling you how they think. Right, yeah. But
0: and, and that's my question. Like <laughs> what if everything they've done so far, you can't have a fucking coffee maker in your birthing area. No, no. I mean, and that's the extreme that it went to. What could you possibly do to them? Obviously no one could go after them or no one was doing anything. What could you as a man that got away from there possibly do to bring that organization down?
1: What I'm doing right now. Okay. That's, and I look at it that way that for me to do nothing, I'm kind of abdicating some responsibility here that, you know, not everybody does what I'm doing because And and I'll tell you, in order to do it, I'm going to tell you something, TJ. You have to take on an attitude that the purpose for you doing it is the all-important thing. Those things that you think may happen to you, you've got to brush your side and not talk about them. In other words, you're talking about damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Okay. And these character assassinations, I'm bulletproof. You know why? I don't care what I don't care what they say. Say what you want. What the hell do I care? What do I care? So what?
0: So when did this spirit come alive? Because in the beginning, you would agree that you were just kind of trying to get on with your life.
1: When did what? Now
0: When did this spirit of of damn the torpedoes? Because when you first escaped, you were just trying to kind of go on with your life. Stay quiet (laughs) and kind of do your thing.
1: So what was it that
0: that made that that switch
1: flip? One incident, and I'll tell you that right now. I made CDs of the interview with these two PIs. And now we were going to drive it down to Florida where my two daughters were. And unbelievably, about 20 miles outside of Clearwater, We're picked up by two cars, they're following us. We didn't find out how come they knew until about three months ago, four months ago, where a girl called my wife and said, listen, there's a girl here, I'm at her nail shop, she does nails and she's bragging about, she gets $30 an hour to pick your brains and rat on you to the church. A so-called friend who used to come to a club where I played and would be pumping me for what I was going to do. And all the time she was riding on us. And that's how come they knew. So now we get to Clearwater. <coughs> I go to my daughter Lori's house. I don't get an answer. I go to my daughter Denise's house. Her husband comes to the door, opens up the door about three inches He's talking from behind that. I can hear a dog barking. And I said, Jerry, I'd like to speak to Denise. He says, you got to go to the church. They'll handle it. You got to route out properly. I said, Jerry, you know, that's a waste of time. It's just, let me talk to Denise, please. We go back and forth for about 20 minutes. Finally, I said to him, Jerry, what does this mean? He says, I'll tell you what it means. Denise and I are disconnected from you forever and closed the door at that very moment i said you know what i'm gonna write a book and i'm gonna expose them it was at that very moment that i decided to do it i wrote the book it came out on may 26 2016 it hit number one on the new york times bestseller list for nonfiction, and for the month of june it also hit number one and prior to that i had been on talk shows like 2020 uh, late night with Seth myers. I did the whole round of p- people doing that. Right. And it was then because I was, I was interviewed on 2020 for eight hours, six hours in Philly and two hours in Milwaukee. I was on screen for maybe 20 minutes and they took sound bites and told their story. And that's how come I have a website because I said, I'm going to let people come on to tell their story. I'm not going to throw them under the bus They can tell the entire thing. I'll give them an hour to do so. And that's how come I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's how it ended up that way.
0: With the book, Ruthless Scientology, My Son, David Miscavige and Me. Yep. Let's talk about the title first. Yeah. Why did you pick that title? Because you started out not my son and me. You started out Ruthless.
1: No, I didn't. I didn't pick, pick any of it. Okay. There was, a, there was a girl there who was a buyer, I think, for Walmart at St. Martin's. And she said, I wouldn't name the book. If he dies, let him die.
0: Because and, of the incident with the phone.
1: Yeah, of course. And she said, no, call the book Ruthless and then add whatever you want. And that's what we did. And that's how it got that name. Do you see the cover on that book? I do. Okay. That shot was shot in my garage outside of my house.
0: Well, I I will definitely put it up. Um, there's actually two different covers. There's one with like a a black strip that says ruthless over David's face, and then one of you holding the picture. Uh, two I two different. I think the
1: one you're talking about is the one in England and Germany.
0: Right. So after this book comes out, it's written. It's a it's a number one. Uh, bestseller, you're 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 pretty much one of the first ones to come out about Scientology. I mean, d- on that big of a level. Yeah. Uh, there were other people that did it. Uh, Leah Remini came out. All those kind of things. This comes out. Do you hear from your son, your two daughters, anybody, no. even no. in a bad way, to say what the hell are you doing? No, never. Did that surprise you cuz it
1: surprises me. Well, what am I going to say? Like did anybody call me and try to sort out what the difference was? Never.
0: I I, I mean, I guess I'm looking at, at at any kind of uh any kind of statement to you whether it be good, whether it be bad, just someone Trying to figure out what's going on No one did that
1: Nobody tried to figure out What went on with me Period that was it I had left I got a letter from David That uh, was basically Telling me how wrong I was And all this stuff And said it, It didn't even say dear Ron or dear dad Or dad or Ron And didn't even sign it But it was from him though
0: How do you know it was from him
1: Well, who else would say that? Who would say you were never a moral beacon for me? Things like that.
0: And that's what's strange to me, though, because when he came to you and said that this is what he wanted to do, you were the one that helped him start this path.
1: Well, look, power corrupts, power corrupts people. It it just listen. He got the, the church's tax exemption. In 93, at that point, he could do no wrong. I mean, that was a coup, because if that would have been held in place, the church would have went down in flames. He saved everybody at that point, so to speak, because there were hundreds of people suing the church, suing the IRS individuals. <clears throat> all those suits were lifted. All, all the people got tax exemption for their money that they've donated you You can't get better than that, you see I, what i'm saying
0: i no i I absolutely understand what you're saying, especially about that because you're 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 definitely right that that I think that will go down as probably one of the biggest things that's ever been done for the Church of Scientology
1: oh it absolutely will on the other hand, let me tell you something I think if I had taken a different path. I think no matter what David would have chosen in life, he would have been a success at it. I really do.
0: I can I can agree with you on I, that.
1: I really do. Because to pull off that, that takes incredible intelligence and balls, you know, and just courage. And, uh, you know, well, look, at a couple of things, Ron, L. Ron Hubbard said that I try to live by, and I'll tell you what one of them is. Okay. Don't regret yesterday. Life is in you today and you create your own tomorrow. Sitting around regretting what happened. The end result is having regretted something. There's no gain at all.
0: Well, and that kind of cuts off my next question because I was going to ask, do you have any regrets of anything that's happened? Do you have any
1: regrets? I don't know if you'd call them regrets because at that time I did them, I did them based on what I thought was the best of knowledge that I was getting to make the decisions. So how could I regret that? I mean, you know, I, I was conned. Uh, let's face it. I would I, That's I, simply I, it.
0: I, no, I, I absolutely agree. I guess that question goes to uh maybe left sooner. uh Maybe took a harder look sooner. I, I don't know. I, I guess that's the question that I'm really getting at. Does that ever bother you? No. No.
1: No. I, I live my life doing as good as I can. I have a four word philosophy that I'm going to tell you what it is, and I try to live by it. Okay. Okay. Help someone help something. Simple as that. I try to live by that every day. I feed the birds, the rabbits, the squirrels. Uh, People sometimes are a little bit down. I'll give them some money or maybe give them some good advice or whatever. I try to do something every day. There's a Milwaukee rescue mission. And, you know, you can say, well, they just take people in who are homeless. They also have two floors where they train people in jobs. I didn't notice until I went down there one time. And they train people how to do a job. And then they give them clothes to go out and apply for the job. And if they get it, they can stay there for a while at a very cheap rent. I support that organization. I send them money. And it's just, it, I, you could say it's for selfish. Because I feel better giving people something than getting it, to be honest with you.
0: I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, yeah. I, I think that you're taking probably some of that stuff you learn from the church and putting it to a practical use instead of a uh, I don't even know what kind of use it would be with everything that you've told me because when i hear everything about the church that was said it 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 makes the philosophy of it seem more and more crazy every time i hear it uh, yeah, and especially with guys like you and when you write these books and they make these shows and they talk about all these things, it's just amazing to me that people continue on a daily basis joining up with it.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know how many people are joining now because in the nineties apparently was about a hundred thousand Scientologists. Now, from people who have left the church who were on those lines where they had reasons to know. How many people were still around because they would send out uh, literature to them. They would find out how many people were at a particular church. Their estimate is it's down to about 20,000 people.
0: Still cranking out a ton of money, though.
1: Well, I'll tell you, they have whales. You know what a whale is? I do. They These are people, they call them that in in Las Vegas. They come there and they're big spenders. And uh, they'll comp them the room, the food and everything. Just let them sit down at a gambling table because they'll lose a lot of money. Well, there are whales in Scientology that still give like millions of dollars just thinking that somehow they're contributing to the well-being of every man, woman and child on the planet. Actually thinking that.
0: One more question for you, Ron, before we wrap this up. Your son comes to you, tells you that he wants to work everything out. You can come back into the fold, everything, but you have to come back into the fold. What's your answer?
1: I could never go back to living that life again. I just couldn't do it. There's no way I I would uh, subject myself to that. That's a life of. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's a concentration camp but it's it's not a democratic life it it definitely is socialism at its worst you know there there's probably a lot of good well we have social security that's a that's a social thing that's a good thing i think but to live that life again i couldn't do it i i couldn't come back and live by those rules again period
0: So we changed that question up just a little bit for this one. Your son's standing in front of you. What do you say to him? If you could say anything you want to him right now, what would it be?
1: You know, I don't know. (laughs) I've been asked this by several other people, too. And uh, I say, hey, Dave, how you doing? Do
0: you think anything else? Do you... Do you talk about what's happened or do you just let it lie?
1: Well, I don't know if it would do any good about getting into it because I laid out in the book where I felt that the church could survive if they did certain things. And one of them would be to give up disconnection. Just end that disconnection. Don't have it anymore. Anybody who's disconnected can talk to anybody they want to. Okay number 2 give a general amnesty to everybody that means forgiveness of anything that anybody's ever done and number 3 take only those products that produce the result that they say they're going to produce by proven statistics and sell only them quit offering spiritual gain that you have no way to deliver and you've never delivered it if they did those three things there could be a semblance of them surviving because right now i think they're like the titanic and thank god they have whales to buy enough bilge pumps to keep the water out of the the holes in the ship but those are the three things i think would have to happen
0: I think that's going to be about it, Ron. Uh, I want you to let everybody know where they can find you. I want you to talk about your YouTube, your book, uh, your website, all of it, where they can find you and hear more of your story. Because it is a, a, a truly, truly uh, just absolutely crazy story to me that that you've gone through this and that you've, you've somehow gained the strength to tell your story.
1: Well, I'll tell you where to go. Go to... The therealronmiscavige.com and as I said earlier in the program make sure you put in those exact words and when it, the website comes up you'll see a guy sitting on a bench in front of a body of water and up in the upper left hand it'll say it must stop and if you go down you can see the interviews I did with the police you, you can get around my website but if you go to watch Ron's YouTube show there's one particular set of videos I'd like you to watch and it's, it's going to help you. And it's on story time. And it starts with attitudes and states of mind. And then it's the will versus the imagination, the will versus the imagination part two, the will versus the imagination part three and the will versus the imagination, the Marine Corps. Those five videos, and they're short, they're only between, I'd say six and eight minutes. Yep. And I'm telling you, it's solid, solid information that you can use to improve your life and lead a better life right now. And it doesn't cost you a penny. You can just watch these. Mind you, I do accept one-time donations, you know, and how to do it is right in the description on the video. And or you can become a Patreon, But those are the most important ones, I would say, for you to watch if you're going to go on it now. On the other hand, you can watch interviews. I've interviewed Mike Rinder, Leah Remini, literally dozens of other people who have escaped who tell similar stories to what I told mine. And you can just peruse those at your, your will. And uh, I think you'd, you'd benefit mostly from watching those short little videos I just mentioned to you and TJ I want to thank you for being patient with me we had a hell of a start getting on the air tonight but that was <laughs> listen okay. I, I was telling I said listen I could teach you music theory and harmony but I'm a kid in second grade could beat me on the internet and that's the <laughs> true guy I was born and raised in an analog era you know
0: that that is absolutely okay guys that's going to be it make sure that you go check out everywhere that Ron said he was the real Ron check out his book Ruthless Scientology My Son David Miscavige and Me uh you can find him on youtube you can check out those storytime videos. You can check out his interviews with other Scientologists that have escaped. If you want more of me, of course, you can go to YouTube at the DTD podcast. You can go on the Facebook group at the DTD podcast, and you can catch me on Twitter at DoubleSpeakDJ. That's going to be it for tonight. That's Ron. I'm DJ. This has been Escaping Scientology. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys. Bye-bye.